So good to be back. About a month ago, it really was about a month ago, December 19th was um, our last Sunday in church. And I was talking, I don't know if he's here this morning yet, uh, I was talking to Stephen Overholt, and we're out here. I said, yeah, I'll be back uh, after, we'll have the baby sometime in the next few days, and uh, I'll be back to preach on January 2nd. I'll be back to preach on January 2nd, and he looked surprised. He like, eyes got a little big as he looked at me, and I don't know if he knew something I didn't know, <laughs> but as you know, I haven't been here uh, for, for a long time. I wasn't in the pulpit on the 2nd, and so uh, we had our, our baby, uh, little Jude Eric Durso. He's right there in the back with Ashley, um, born on Christmas Eve, and then COVID struck, <laughs> and uh, our daughter Emma got it first, and then it spread to the rest of us, and even extended family, and that was wild, and we were recovering, and um, but you know what, along the way, in the, in the time that we were gone, we were, we were well cared for. Uh, well cared for, uh, first of all, by our God, who is so kind to us when we're weak and can't do much for ourselves, but also by so many of you. So thank you for the text messages. Thank you for the prayers, the phone calls, the meals that were dropped off. Um, our fridge was so full of food, and uh, we didn't leave the house for like three weeks. So it was nice to be able to go and eat and um, have everything that we needed there for us, people dropping off groceries and everything. I just want to also, just as, as I'm thinking about this, how well we were cared for, there are still so many of our people, maybe they're watching online uh, right now because they can't come because they're sick or uh, for whatever reason. The, the, the virus seems to have hit us pretty hard the last few weeks. So there are some people that you just haven't seen in a while. Maybe just check in on them and send them a text. Certainly be praying for them. Maybe drop off a meal if there's people who are still just in the recovery phase. It was such a blessing to us, um, and I would encourage you to think about how we might continue to care for those who are just exhausted after facing uh, the sickness that's been going around. Um, thank you to Michael for filling in in so many ways, and Mark, last minute, last Sunday, and they both did fine jobs, right? So good to dive into the Word and to feed the flock with excellency and um, thankful for a church that could do that and for men who love the Word and can preach the Word and are willing to step in and serve in uh, situations that are less than ideal. But we're going to be back in Mark this morning. Um, we're, we're an expositional church. That is, we, we pick a, a book and we go through it. I want you to grab your Bible and open up into Mark chapter 12 Sometimes, when we're beginning the year, I know it's not really the beginning of the year anymore. I mean, it's still January, but, you know, I was gone for three weeks, so give me a break. It's the beginning of the year to me. It's the first Sunday of 2022 for me. Um, and sometimes, at the beginning of the year, we like to step out of the series that we're doing. If we're preaching through the, the Gospel of Mark, for instance, we would step out and do something that would help calibrate our hearts and minds for the new year. So many of us are making, um, making goals, or we want to get new habits in our lives. New Year's resolutions are on the mind. And during that kind of uh, season, the, the new year is upon us. We're thinking about the big things that really matter. So what are we going to do this year? What are the goals we're striving for this year? What can I do this year in my life to 
grow or to change, to become a better Christian, a better father or mother, husband or wife, friend, family member. We're, we're thinking about those kind of bigger questions, right, at the beginning of the year, um, and that's important. I don't feel like, though, this morning I need to step out of the text or the next text to talk about these things because the text that we are finding ourselves in this morning is one of those passages that forces us to think about the most important aspect of our lives. I mean, this, if anything should, uh, could, should shape our thinking of goals, this text should be there. The text we're going to look at this morning should be front and center as you think about the way you want to grow this year, the way you want to change this year. As you're thinking about all the resolutions, I want to encourage you to meditate with me on the following verses as we go through it and think about how these principles shape who we are. This, this is a passage that God reveals to us the most important requirement. We're going to see, if you've read ahead, you already know, that it is what? It is love. I titled the, the sermon this morning, The Most Important New Year's Resolution. Maybe you've already made all your New Year's resolutions, but if you have, I want to ask you to consider this New Year's resolution to love. You got the Bible open there, right there in front of you, or in chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark, and I want to read verses 28 to 34. We're going to think a lot about love. We're going to think a lot about love. You're there in verse 28. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked them, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right. Teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's get a little context here. We'll understand this a little better. If you remember, we've been in this for the last few months, and I want to make it clear every time we're in the text to set it in your minds that this is the last week of Jesus's life. We have the triumphal entry just a few days ago. He came in to Jerusalem and uh, heard the, the roar of approval from the crowds. He came in as the Messianic Davidic king on that Sunday. On Monday, if you remember, what did he do? Went straight to the temple, cleared the place, 
shut down the false religion that had taken over there. And that's where he really began to earn the ire of the leaders, the religious leaders. He already had a bad reputation with them. They didn't like him. All the way back in chapter 3, we begin to see that they want to destroy him. Here it's reached a pinnacle. They want him dead. They want to do something about Jesus who is now disrupting them, not only with his teaching, but actually physically knocking over tables and shutting down worship in the temple. That's what's going on on Monday. On Tuesday, he begins teaching. He begins teaching, and he's been teaching since the end of chapter 11. He's teaching all the way through 12, all the way through 13. He's teaching. And so, in the context, he's dealing with all the various religious leaders who keep coming to him in the temple. He's in this giant courtyard that would have been in the temple. He's holding court. Everybody's listening. I'm sure a crowd would have been around him. They all want to hear what he has to say, and one by one, all the different uh, powers that be come to try to test him. If you remember at the end of chapter 11, verse 27, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders come, and they want to ask him about authority. Jesus responds, and he shuts them down. And after that happens, the Pharisees teamed up with the Herodians. In chapter 12, verses 13 on, they try to stump him. They try to ask him a political question. Jesus, with profound wisdom, responds to them. Then the Sadducees come in verse 18 to 27, and they're trying to stump him theologically. They're trying to ask him a question about the resurrection and stump him on that level. And Jesus answers that by pointing to the Torah's uh, proof that there will be resurrection, that God is a God of the living, not the God of the dead. And here, look at verse 28, we get a scribe. This is a little bit of a reprieve of the antagonistic leaders that want to come to him. This scribe, it says there in verse 28, that he came up and he heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked a question. In other words, the scribe, not associated with the rest of the groups that were trying to stump him, this guy actually sees how Jesus is responding to everything and he's liking Jesus. He's seeing that he's answering them well. This scribe would have been well-educated. He would have had some sort of authority in, 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 the, in Israel in those days. He would have been recognized as a kind of scholar. He would have been one that interpreted the Old Testament and was even understood to be an authoritative teacher of the law. That's what a scribe would do. He's well-educated. He would have been assessing how Jesus, this this rabbi Jesus who is now coming into Jerusalem and setting all kinds of things on fire as he uh, gets the attention of all the people around. They want to see what's going on with Jesus. The scribe comes up. He's listening. He's liking what he hears. And he asks a question that's not intended to stump. I think he's asking a question that he's genuinely curious about the answer. Look at what he, what he asks. He says, which commandment is the most important of all. This is not actually an out-of-left-field question either. This is actually a question that the, the scribes and uh, the lawyers of the day and the Pharisees and those who studied the Old Testament law, rabbis, they would ask this question. This is actually one of those questions that gets thrown around all the time and like, hey, what do you think? What is the most important commandment? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that rabbis love to talk about. If you go to seminaries, there's certain like theological questions that all the students are talking about. It's like, 
what do you think? And you toss this little theological question in the midst of a group of seminarians and they're like a bunch of bulldogs on a bone. They'll go after that and they'll start talking about it and they all got their ideas. Well, that's what the rabbis did with this question. They all had different ideas and they all were, would talk about. There were 613 distinct commandments in the Old Testament. And they would often try to prioritize them. The, the scribes and the rabbis would try to figure out which were the most important of these 613. And they would often even, <clears throat> excuse me, categorize the, the laws. They would, say these are the, they would say these are the heavy laws and these are the light laws. They would say these are the essential laws and these are the non-essential laws. It was sport almost for the leaders in Israel to do this kind of thing, arguing about the most important laws. Uh, there's a funny story, I don't know how funny it is, an interesting story that uh, it was popular back in Jesus' day that there was a, a famous rabbi, the Rabbi Hillel. I've actually referred to him before. He lived before the time of Christ, very well-known and influential Jewish rabbi. And he was asked by a Gentile man, actually the Gentile man came up to him and said, hey, make me a proselyte. In other words, make me, I'll become Jewish. I'll believe all the things you believe. Make me a proselyte on condition that you teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. I'll become a Jew if you can explain everything to me while I'm standing on one foot. In other words, make it really short because I don't want to stand on one foot all day. In other words, summarize it all down to its very core. That's what I want you to do. If you can do that, I'll become uh, Jewish like you. And Rabbi Hillel replied, what you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. It's not a bad summary, is it? Uh, what you hate for yourself, don't do to your neighbor. It actually sounds very much like what Jesus would go on to teach in the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's not bad. In other words, this is what rabbis did. This is how they talked. This is the kind of stuff they wrestled with. What were the most important laws? How can you summarize the laws? If I want to take everything that God has revealed in the Old Testament, how can I break it down so I can explain it to you in maybe a phrase? in maybe something I could explain to you in 15 seconds. Is there a way to take all of this Old Testament law and communicate it in something very bite-sized that a child could understand? That's the, that was what the scribe's asking. He's, he's taken the sport of the day, and now he's tossing it to Jesus, and he's saying, what do you think, Jesus? What's your answer? What is the most important commandment that God has given humanity. And what is it, church? It's love. It's love. The rest of the sermon, I want to break it up into three parts. We're going to see the primacy of love. We're going to see substitute love. We're going to finish with the idea of cultivating love. Let's first look at Jesus' response to this question where we see the primacy or the priority, the supremacy of love. Look with me, verse 29. Here's Jesus' answer. The most important commandment, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what Jesus does. He answers their question by quoting two Bible verses, two verses from the Pentateuch, two verses from the Torah. The first is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is the hero Israel that's called the Shema to the Jews. And secondly, Leviticus 19, 18, which states you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He takes one from Deuteronomy, one from Leviticus, and he essentially says, you want to know the greatest commandment, let me tell you, you could summarize them all with these two verses, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Leviticus 19, 18, which states that you ought to love God with everything you've got, and you want to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the greatest commandment. Jesus doesn't really play the game fairly, because if you notice, the question is about the single greatest commandment, and what does Jesus do? He gives two. But what we'll see is the reason he gives two is because there is no separating these. That if there is true love for God, there will be love for neighbor. The primacy of love. That God has spoken, and God has given commands, and God requires of his people something. And the ultimate Listen, church, we we have to let this sink in. The ultimate command that every other command falls under, the umbrella command, is the command from God that we love him and that we love our neighbors, that we ought to be people who love, exude love, flow out and pour out love, For God in people, that's the command that God gives all his people. That is the priority. The greatest command Muhammad gave the Muslims was to submit. Jesus gives a different answer. You are to love. To love God. To love people. The greatest commandment isn't about gaining knowledge. It isn't about having education. It isn't about making money. It isn't about getting a nice career. It isn't about philanthropy. It isn't about success. It is about love. Loving God and loving people. In fact, this ought to be central in how we think about all of our lives is how do we love God? God in people, and is our life characterized by love? I mean, wouldn't it be a tragedy if we didn't love God very much? Oh, sure, we're religious. We were very religious, but at the end of the day, we were not very loving. Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, the the famous love chapter, often read at weddings, where we're going to see that By God's standard, the the best life you can live is a life of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. If, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, 
I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I'm going to paraphrase that real quick. Without love. If you don't have love, your heavenly angelic speech is simply annoying. If you don't have love, your theological knowledge and philosophical brilliance helps no one. If you don't have love, your powerful risk-taking faith is meaningless. If you don't have love, giving generously to the poor is unprofitable. If you don't have love, even laying down your own life is pointless. Maurice Roberts writes this, and I want this to just sink in, soak in this, because if we don't get this, we will miss it all. He writes, in these familiar words, referring to 1 Corinthians 13, in these familiar words, we possess one of the most central principles of the Christian faith. It is this, listen, no religious act is of any value in God's sight if it does not accompany and flow from Christian love. Nothing you do. Well, I don't, it doesn't matter if it's church stuff or if it's friendly or if it's seen by others as good and people pat you on the back for it. If there's no love for God and neighbor in what you're doing, it is, according to God, worthless. It, it actually does nothing. It serves as a self-deceiving act because suddenly you think you're great because you're doing all these things, whereas God is evaluating these things you've done. If there is no love for him, if it's not motivated our love for him, if it's not then flowing out of our love for him onto our neighbors, if it's not driven by love, it's nothing. That's what the apostle is saying. I mean, could you imagine being busy your whole life with religious things? Oh, you show up early to the church and you help set up the chairs and you're there helping out with every possible thing that is needed. You're greeting people at the door. You're you're staying after late to clean up. You vacuum on weekdays to make sure that the place is prepared for when people are going to use it. But could you imagine a person who is doing all this not because they love God with all they've got and they love people, but simply because they feel that it is duty or they feel that it is something they ought to do to earn something from God or from people or perhaps they're doing it simply because they want to be recognized or simply because they want to make themselves feel good. They want to convince themselves that they're actually a good person after all and so they commit themselves. Listen, there are people who are doing all kinds of good things but it's not because they love God. If you were to peel away the layers and get down to the root of it, what's going on in their heart, they're doing a lot of good things because they love themselves. And they want to convince themselves that they're really good people. And they want to give a lot of other people to recognize how good they really are. There are people committed to all kinds of morality who don't love God. And at the end of the day, Jesus is pointing us 
to the greatest commandment. And it starts with love God. And St. Paul in 1 Corinthians is riffing on this idea and he goes on to say, if we don't have love, we have nothing. Nothing. So it's possibly busy. Service with ministry, with good things. And to be empty of love. Look at the text. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6. I mentioned he starts by saying, Hear, O Israel. It's an announcement. A declaration. Listen up. Hear, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is our God. He is our Lord. And he is one. He is not one of many gods. He is unique. He is set apart. And because he is our God and because he is the only God, that he is the only one worthy of all love and devotion. It says that we ought to love God. That word is the Greek word agapeo, where you've maybe heard the word agape, love. The idea is that we have affection for God. We adore God. We admire God. We cherish God. We delight in God. We take pleasure in God. See, what Jesus is saying is the greatest commandment is that we ought to love and delight and rejoice in and cherish and treasure God himself. God as God. Regardless of the gifts he gives, to love him in and of himself, to delight and take pleasure in him. That's what it means to love God. God will not be a means to an end. You know what I mean? There's so many people that see God as a means to an end. I'll go to God if I can get this. I'll go to God if he'll make my life better. I'll go to God if he can give me this thing that I really want. And if that's the way we treat God, God is a cosmic butler. He's not our God. We're going to God to get what is actually our God. We have all kinds of idols that are there in our hearts, and we're trying to make God polish up our idols and get them all ready for us. You see, God will not be second place. He says, here, everybody, listen up, Israel. There's only one God. He is the Lord. He is set apart. He is holy. And he alone is worthy of all love and affection. He is to be your delight. He is to be your joy. He is to be your everything. He is not a means to an end. You don't go through him to get somewhere else. He is the end and point and goal of all our lives, to love him, to love God. Listen to the language that is used here. To love God with all our hearts. The heart, it's the command center of the person. From your heart you think. From your heart you evaluate. From your heart you feel. You decide. You rejoice. You grieve. You choose. The heart is the inner you. Jesus is saying the innermost part of your being, your heart, in everything that you choose, in every way you evaluate, your heart ought to be given in love entirely to God. You ought to love God with all your soul. The, the Greek word for soul is suke. It's referring to the inner being, the life-giving principle within you, your spirit, your innermost being, the very core of who you are ought to be flowing with love for God. Love God with all your mind. That is to say that your mental, your thinking, your contemplating, your reasoning aspect ought to be all your, your brain power ought to be used to love God, to cultivate love for God, 
It is to be used in service of knowing God, understanding his word, and putting to practice all that he has commanded us. We are to love God, it also says, with all our strength. God has given you strength to walk. Every step that you take should be out of love for God. God has given you strength to speak. Every word that comes out of your mouth should be an expression of love for God. If God has put strength in your hands to work, all your work should be an expression of love for God. Every ounce of energy, body and soul, is to be given to God. Look at the word four times there in verse 30. I wonder if you saw it. All. You see it? All. All your heart. All your soul. All your mind. All your strength. None of it is to be reserved. None of it is to be held back. Give your whole heart to God. Your whole soul. All of your mind. All of your strength. Every aspect of your being fully laid down before God and saying it's yours. There is no square inch of your life that you are allowed to hold back from God. It's all his. He says, love me with everything that you are, your whole self, your entire being, your complete strength, everything you have. You might wonder why God does this. Why does God require this of us? Is he, is he vain? Love me, love me. And any person that would do that, we would think is a megalomaniac. You must love me with everything you've got. And yet God here is saying to his people, here I am, I'm the only one, I'm the one true God, love me with every fiber of your being. Listen, here's why. God is inviting us to set our hearts on the only thing that will not break our hearts. God is inviting us to love that which can never go away, namely himself. God is inviting us to set our loves on a firm foundation. You love anything else more than God, that thing will ruin you. That thing will become an idol, and let me guarantee you, it will let you down. It will break your heart to give it to that which cannot hold it. Even good gifts. You make marriage an idol, you'll ruin your marriage, you'll ruin, you'll, you'll break your heart. You make your kids an idol, you'll crush them under the unmet expectations you have, you'll break your own heart. You put your, you put your love in, in a career, you put your love in your hopes of circumstances and how they're all going to turn out. You, you set your love on anything, eventually it will let you down because listen, everything is mutable in this earth. In this world, there's only one thing that's immutable. God, he will never let you down. You give him your whole heart, you will never be let down. In other words, God is inviting you to love him with everything you've got because that is the only place you will be secure. It is for your highest good that you love him more than anything else. He's not being vain, he's being loving. In inviting you to love him, he is showing you how secure and stable he is. No idol will be able to do for you what God alone can do for you. Love him with everything you've got. Love ought to be the defining feature of your life. Sometimes it's helpful for us to think about life down the road. We, we think about who we're going to be in 50 years. Or we think about what people are going to say about us when they all come to that 
gathering at the graveside, and there we are about to be put under the ground, and people are given an opportunity to say something. I remember being at a funeral where a person died young, and they're being lowered into the ground. The person who was leading the, the ceremony there gave everyone an opportunity to share one word that defined the person that was, had just deceased. And as they're around, everyone had different things to say, and I wonder what you would hope is being said when it's you in the casket. What will they say about you? And if this is the greatest obligation God has given to humanity, wouldn't you hope that someone might say about your life that that person loved? They were just a lover of God. There's something about them that they just adored God. They delighted in the one true God. They had an affection for him that was so evident. They loved God. And as a result of that, they loved people. They loved their neighbor. I wonder what you're most concerned about this year. I wonder if you made some resolutions. We talked about this already. We're all thinking about it this time of year. You got all kinds of things that you're most concerned about, these things you want to do, maybe career aspirations, education goals, things you want to do. If you had one thing, if there was only one thing, I'd say scratch everything else out and say, I need to work on loving God with all my heart this year. I need to work on cultivating a heart for God this year. That, that's it. I mean, what? What use would it be to succeed in everything else if we don't have a heart for God? What use would it be? Give away your body to be burned if you don't have love, it's worthless. You love the Lord. You love your neighbor. He connects those two together. You see it. I've already mentioned it. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I want to spend more time talking about our love for God because I think a love for neighbor naturally flows When we have a love for God where it ought to be, that means is, if we're talking about loving our neighbor as ourselves, what that means is we want for them the same treatment we would want for ourselves if we were in their place. We want to, to treat them with generosity, care, and concern. That's how we would want to be treated. Certainly, shouldn't we treat the neighbors that God has put around us that way? Well, if we love God, you know what? That love for neighbor begins to flow forward. I wonder if you love your neighbors. You could actually use this question as a, a way to assess your love for God. Because if you ask yourself, do I love my neighbors? And the answer is no. You know what that says about your love for God? It actually points to the fact you don't love God very much. Because every single person is made in God's image. If we don't love his image bearers, we don't love him. It's a cause for us to really think, perhaps even repent, to ask ourselves, man, am I a loving person? I tell you, I study this and it's deeply convicting. Because you think about how lovable God is and then you consider your own love for him and you just go, I fall short. I fall so short of loving God the way he deserves to be loved and loving neighbor as myself. But where do we begin? I want to give you first a warning and then we'll get to 
a step in the right direction. The warning, I want to draw from the scribe's response. Look at verse 32, and we're going to label this second point, substitute love. He says, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there's no other besides him. And to love with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. I want to just pause and think about what he's saying there. The scribe is right. As you'll see that Jesus affirms his answer and tells them there at the end in verse 34, you're not far from the kingdom of God. The scribe's answer is wise. And one of the things the scribe does in his answer, look at verse 33, he compares love for God and love for neighbor to burnt offerings and sacrifices. You see the comparison. He's saying that if you were to have all the burnt offerings and sacrifices and put them over here and put love for God and neighbor over here, the love for God and neighbor is far more valuable than doing these burnt offerings. He's making or he's alluding to the reality what is often happening in Israel, in the Old Testament, and what often happens in our own hearts is that God calls us to love him and we respond with religious activity. That's what was happening with Israel. God would say to the Israelites, come to me, love me with all your heart, turn to me and be saved, devote yourself to me, love me more than anything else, no other gods before me. And the Israelites, they wouldn't outrightly ignore what God said, but they would respond by upping their religious ritual game. Okay, God, you want me to love you? Let me kill another bull. Let me do another sacrifice. Let me do another burnt offering. And so they would become formalists, you see. They would not address the heart. They would rather begin doing external acts of religion that they thought were love. They didn't actually address their hearts and cultivate their hearts to love the true God. They would rather just go through the motions of religious performance. It's like a husband and a wife. The wife says to her husband, husband, I just want you to love me. And so the husband works longer hours at work so they can get more money. And the wife says, no, I want you to love me. I want you to delight in me. And the husband buys her a bigger house. But no, just love me. It's not about more money. It's, it's not about the house. Just love me. And he sends her away to a beautiful resort. It's like you're, miss, you're, like you're doing things that could be good expressions of love, but you're missing the heart. And God would command our hearts, and we'd go, all right, I'm going to be more committed to show up to church on time this year. Love me. Okay, I'm going to read this Bible plan this year. Now, those could be really good things. But when we never address the heart and we move straight to the religious performance, we actually circumvent the change God wants to do deep within our beings. You see, there is a danger, church. I wonder if you're aware of the danger that the scribe is alluding to, that we think religious performance is what God wants more than a heart that loves him. And so you're going to hear a sermon like this, okay, I've got to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're going to begin by thinking of all the new things you have to do in 2022, all the rituals you've got to perform, all the new ways you've got to serve. Now, that could come, and that should come 
but in its proper place and in its proper order. Because if you skip the heart and go straight to the ritual, you will miss what God wants to do in your heart. You'll miss the right, the, the right here, the, the priority that Jesus is giving. You might say, well, what do I do then? Like, how do I escape formalism? How do I make sure that I actually doing things from a heart of love? I'll point you to Revelation chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but I would ask you to read that maybe this afternoon or sometime this week. To pick up your Bible, go to the last book of the Bible, go to Revelation chapter 2, and read the first section about the church in Ephesus. You know why? Because Ephesus lost its first love. The church in Ephesus, Jesus says, you lost your first love. Well, what were they supposed to do? Jesus gave them what they were to do. You know what they were to do? You know what the first thing? That you, you lost your love you don't love God the way you ought. You're still a church. You're still going through all the motions. You're still doing all the stuff, but you lost your love. Here's what you do. He gave them three things to do. Remember where you came from. Remember how you once loved me. Remember. And then the second thing, repent. Come to God and confess it all. Say where you failed and receive his free grace. And then he says, do the works that you used to do. Get that in order. Do you see the order? First there's remembering. Then there's repentance. Then get busy doing the works that you were called to do. You see, if we get doing first, what happens? We become ritualistic, external-only, formalistic Christians that never have addressed the heart and never have repented of our sin. That's substitute love. That's substitute love. We don't want that. So we begin with repentance. The last point I have here is the cultivation of love. You know what? We're going to save this for next week because I think it deserves enough time uh, that could fill a sermon, and I don't want to get us out of here at 1230. So we're going we're gonna to pause here. And I want to reflect on those last three words. Remember, repent, and do. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, don't skip remember, don't skip repentance, and go straight to the things you need to do. Start with remembering what God has called you to, and repenting. I do have to say, in a, in a group this large, in a season of life this distracting, it is easy to assume that there is drifting taking place in some of our lives. In fact, if we're all honest, every one of us will drift from time to time. That we'll drift from love for God. We'll get caught up in the busyness of life. We'll get caught up in the things going on around us, the work that we have and the pressures on us at home and in our families and all these other things. And what happens if we never address the drift, we realize we're 50 miles off course. And if we don't correct, we're going to be in all kinds of trouble. What do we do? Take some time this week remembering where God has called you to be and repenting confessing, bringing it to the Lord, and asking for help. 
Don't even think about all the things you might do for him this year. Start with just saying, I have failed in this way. I have drifted in this way, and I need your help, Lord. One of the things you might do also, talk to someone else here. You might say, here's how I've been drifting. I just haven't been in the Word at all. I haven't been praying. My heart has grown cold. Would you pray for me? Would you call me this week and check in on me? Can you help me this week? An expression of your desire to cultivate the love of God in your heart. Let's pray. So Father, we love you. And yet in light of what you command us to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, we confess how much we've fallen short. Corporately, right now, Lord, we confess the sin of lovelessness. We do not love you according to your worth. We do not adore you. We do not treasure you. We often do not delight in you as we ought. We confess it as sin. We repent. We turn from lovelessness. We direct our gaze to you. We remember what you've called us to. We remind ourselves that you are supremely lovable. We remind ourselves that you have demonstrated your supreme love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. He died for people who could not love him according to his worth. Thank you. We ask for help. And for any here who would confess that they have never loved you, that they have lived for themselves, that they have never sought forgiveness, pray that they would look to Christ, that they would see his grace, mercy, they would turn from living for themselves, and that you would give them a heart filled with love for you, for all that you are and all that you've done for them in the gospel. May we, Lord, be a church that loves you, loves neighbor, as an expression of your own love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.